0: I think those are powerful hymns that speak of the priestly function of Christ and uh, His atoning work and His continuing work as our intercessor. And that's what we're coming to today in our text is this truth that is important for us to consider. And so we come now to Hebrews chapter 4 and as we have been walking through this chapter we've mentioned that uh, the text has kind of entered a new section before very much on the covenant the superior nature of the covenant in Christ over the covenant at Sinai. And that's something the whole New Testament testifies to, and really even the Old Testament, because the Old Testament is pointing forward to a New Testament, right? Pointing forward to something to come after it. Well, uh, we could take the wording of Bunyan to say that which is last has nothing that comes after it. That New Covenant is the glorious covenant, the fulfillment of all that God has been promising and doing, and so we are thankful for it. But we come to this section that now begins to turn and focus on the priesthood of Christ, a glorious high priesthood. In fact, the glorious high priesthood of Christ. And uh, we saw many things said last Sunday morning about this priesthood. First of all, that he is a high priest. He's not just another priest. He is pictured as the high priest. This was a term, obviously, Israel knew about. Uh, the Jewish Christians to whom he is writing at this time, they would recognize This is not one of many in the role of priest, but one particular priest who served above, if you will, all the other priests as the high priest. So that is, first of all, what's said, but there are some things that are said about this high priest, Jesus. He is a great high priest. I went through last week to say that is to say he is a superior high priest, superior to Aaron, superior to the Levitical priesthood, and that is made very clear. If the political priesthood was enough, why then did we need Jesus? This is really the argument of Paul in Galatians 2.21. If righteousness came by law, if it was enough, the old economy under Moses, if it was enough, then Christ didn't need to come. He died in vain. That's what Paul says. And so we accept it as true because it's the Word of God and it makes sense to us. Why would Jesus need to come if Aaron was enough? If the Old Testament... Priesthood was enough. If the Old Testament sacrifices were enough, they were not enough. They pointed to the one who himself is enough, sufficient in perfection. That is Christ. And so he is a great and superior high priest. And so we recognize that. We see that it's important. And there is much to be exposited in the chapters ahead about the very nature of his superior priesthood. But there's some hints given already. It's kind of like a preview, isn't there? We already said one, it says he's great. That's a great hint that he's going to be superior as he is superior to Moses and the angels. And we see a trend, don't we, along the way. But he's also going to be superior to Aaron. But it also says there's some other things that we need to recognize that we looked at last Sunday. First of all, that he is called the Son of God. And we wanted to hit on this point last Sunday because it's of great importance. He is Yes, truly man, but He is also truly God. He is the only begotten Son of God. He is unique and special. He holds a status that no one else holds. Eternal Son of God. And yet, there's another title given to Him that we'll revisit again today in the first chapter of the Messianic Son. This is a title given to Him in His Messianic work. It says this clearly in chapter 1, verse 4, He's been given a name. Right? which is above the angels, as he has become greater than the angels. And of course, we, all that wording is very confusing when you're talking about the second person of the Trinity. How could he become greater than the angels? This is not, if you will, in, his, uh, in himself as God, but in this role as uh, earthly mediator, king, prophet, all these roles that he came to fill as the messianic son, this is where he became greater than the angels. And he received a greater name, Son. He is the reigning priest-king. You can go back to chapter 1 and revisit all of that. But it's reminded, uh, we're reminded of it here. Again, all of this points to what? The importance, the essential nature of the incarnation. It is not a secondary doctrine. It is not a questionable doctrine. If you pull it out from underneath the truth of the Scriptures, it all collapses. And so again, he is the Son of God, and this is what makes him uniquely qualified to fulfill this role. Does he have to be a man also? Yes. This is argued, isn't it, in chapter 2 that priests are appointed from among men. A priest must represent, be represented, excuse me, a people must be represented by a priest who is like them in, in that sense. It is necessary that he become a man. But for him to be perfect, holy, righteous, spotless, able to give his life as an atonement for sin, he must also be truly God. In fact, as we've mentioned over and over again through the years, this is why we can talk about the incarnation and his perfection in all these roles. Perfect prophet, because a prophet stands between God and man. He is God and man. Perfect priest, he is God and man. Perfect sacrifice, he is God and man. All of these things are pictured, even king, God and man. In the incarnation. So again, we're told that in verse 14. But it also says He passed through the heavens. And we're going to come back to that again today. It's very important to what we want to look at in verse 16 today. But again, all of this is reason, this author says, to hold fast our confession. Now you may remember last week we we talked about that. Speak the same word. Don't change your testimony. Speak the same word. We do that because we have a confidence in who our mediator is, that He is sufficient, that He paid the price for uh, for our sin, that He has redeemed us, that we stand in His righteousness, that we uh, are reconciled to a holy and righteous God, that we have even peace with God. And all of that is the basis of us having a confidence to hold fast our confession, even in difficult days, which they are in. And maybe sometimes we are in. And then we came to verse 15 last week and the reminder that because He was, yes, or is fully God and came into this world in the Incarnation and became truly man, He's been tempted and tried as we are. He's felt our weaknesses. There are weaknesses that are just a part of being human. We get hungry. Christ got hungry. We get tired. Christ got tired. He dealt with all the, if you will, uh, things that that plague us. And yet, all those temptations, all those trials, all those difficulties that were encountered, he did not sin. He remained spotless, pure, perfect. And this means he's still qualified to be our high priest and in two different ways. A, that he is spotless. That makes him our perfect high priest in one sense, but also that he sympathizes with us. He understands our trials, our difficulties. He has experienced many of them. And therefore, those two things qualify Him to be our perfect high priest. And so again, we see this in the text. Now, all of this leads to a therefore. leads to something that we should conclude out of this. Something that it should naturally lead us to think about. And that is the great truth we come to today. So I want to read the text one more time and ask you to think about it. Seeing then that we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast our confession. For we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses, but was in all points tempted as we are, yet without sin. Let us therefore come boldly to the throne of grace, that we may obtain mercy and find grace to help in time of need. Now, one of the things that we want to think about or start with this morning is the idea of a blessed instruction because we're given one in this text a very important and blessed instruction we've already seen a a bit of a review over these verses as we went through it in our introduction but we want to keep those things in mind the author has established in very short terms here who Jesus is as our high priest what makes him uniquely qualified that he is greater than Aaron that he has passed through the heavens that he is the son of God these things make him qualified beyond anything Aaron or any descendant of Aaron could ever meet to be our high priest in fact Christ isn't even from the order of Levi is he he's not an Aaronic priest he's not a Levitical priest he's a priest after an entirely different order which we will come to in time but again this qualifies him and he's able to sympathize with us all these things are important and yet it brings us to a therefore to a therefore Now, it's made pretty clear to us if we just look at the Old Testament shadow of the priesthood, the Old Testament picture given to us, that it tells us something very plain. In fact, it tells us multiple things very plainly. But one of the things it tells us plainly is that we are a sinful people. And the second thing it tells us is we stand before a holy and righteous God who is sinless. And this is a problem, right? This is the problem that Scripture is pointing to. We are a fallen people. God is holy, we cannot stand in His presence, and so we are due judgment. That is what scriptures, uh, the Scriptures clearly teach us, and the law shows us this. It doesn't hide it, it demonstrates it. The law is given to us to fully show the extent of our sin, and to fully show the extent, as far as we can grasp it as humans, of the holiness of God, and the bridge, the gulf, if you will, that is between them, the, the space that is between them that we ourselves cannot bridge. The law shows us this. I have mentioned this often lately, but I really love that imagery of the room that's swept and the dust stirs up in Pilgrim's Progress. That's what the law does. It, it, it makes evident our sin. We choke upon it, it makes it so evident. It stirs its strength, as Paul says in Romans. And so again, we see this. The law shows us this. But it reminds us then that fallen man has a problem. And even God's chosen people in the Old Testament, the nation through whom He is working, Israel, uh, His chosen nation, and uh, His own inheritance from amongst the nations, as it's worded in the Old Testament, there's a problem, isn't there? There's a separation, if you will, even with as uh, important as that people is. When Moses goes on the Mount of Sinai, are the people allowed to go up with him? No. They put one foot on that mountain and they're dead. Well, surely, because they're a beloved people by God, right, chosen from amongst the nations of the earth, you could put your hands on the Ark of the Covenant and just feel how wonderful it is. Well, we learned the hard way through Uzzah, that's not going to work, don't we? No, God is holy. And you are not, even if you were amongst the people of Israel, you are not holy. Well, certainly, we could draw near the presence of God, The, the innermost part of the temple, we can go into the Holy of Holies and draw near to God. No. Anyone steps behind that curtain, dead. In fact, it's not even appointed for the priest to go behind the curtain. It's appointed for one priest to go behind the curtain. The high priest. And even then, the high priest can't go whenever he wants. No matter how great his personal need would be at that moment, no matter how great a family need might be at that moment, no matter how great anyone's need was at that moment, even Israel as a nation might have a great need, and yet that high priest cannot enter behind that curtain. Except one time appointed by God per year, Yom Kippur, the Day of Atonement, he can enter in behind that curtain. And that heavy curtain symbolizes that, doesn't it? That there is a barrier, if you will, And that barrier represents the fact that God is holy and we are not. The law points this to us over and over again. It shows us our need of redemption, our need of reconciliation to God, but it does not empower us to that end. This is what we've been talking about over and over. This is the argument Paul makes over and over about the the difference between the Old Covenant and the New Covenant. The New Covenant being effectual. It has an effect that it actually does what God set it out to accomplish. So does the law, by the way. It's effectual in what it was purposed to do, which is to show you your sin. But it cannot clean your sin up. In fact, it would seem it encourages man in his sinful nature to say, I can clean myself up. I can sweep this room clean. And yet we recognize it's not possible. We need something more that all of that points to and leads us to. But the law itself is not the end. The law is the one that takes us by the hand to that end. The end of the law is Jesus. And so again, we need to recognize that. It's the purpose of the law is to take us to Jesus. So the law tells us all of this. There are rules. We are, if you will, in a sense as sinners, separated from a holy and righteous God. That is important. Now even the high priest, when he entered on Yom Kippur, I'm sure did so fearfully. You know, it said... We don't know. It's said that they would tie a rope around the high priest's waist that when he went in, if he dropped dead, if he said something he shouldn't say, thought an inappropriate thought, they could literally drag him out by the rope. Now, is that legend, apocryphal? Is that true? I don't know. But I would say you entered in fear and trembling into the presence of God. And, of course, the Bible tells us that the beginning of wisdom is the fear of the Lord. But this is a fear for your own life as you enter the Holy of Holies. Even the high priest, following the rules set out on Yom Kippur, entering only that time of year, would have to enter, very fearful for his own existence as he went in. Now, if you want to think about it, then this points to the wisdom of the Old Testament. It says, stay back, be careful, recognize God's holiness, your sinfulness. You can't enter. You can't enter. And yet we come to something that this text begins to tell us. Yes, the Old Covenant points to the fact that God is perfectly holy and you are not. And there is this distance that is necessary or you would be destroyed in the presence of God. What does even the prophet Isaiah say when he is in the presence of the Lord? Woe is me. I'm undone. I'm, I'm fit to be destroyed from a man of unclean lips. I come from a people of unclean lips. Woe is me. Destruction should rightly fall upon me. So again, we see this image over and over again. And so we see again the perfect holiness of God and God providing a way, even in the Old Covenant, even with all of that said, there is a way provided, even if it seems so infrequent and and so limited in who can go into the Holy of Holies. to intercede on behalf of the people of God, there is still a way made. It's the way God has made. That on this day, once a year, one can enter and intercede and sprinkle blood on behalf of God's people. Now, that, by the way, was glorious in itself, wasn't it? Because outside of that, then you're not going to be made right, if you will, as the people. There has to be a Yom Kippur. There has to be this day which pictures God's cleansing of His people. And so, again, all of this points to something, but... We need to recognize that this text is telling us that all those things are inadequate when you look at them compared to Christ. That's why Christ came. That's why it points forward to one greater than it. The Levitical priesthood is not the end. The curtain is not the end. Those were temporary pictures pointing to something greater. And that greater has come. This is a theme we've had over and over again, isn't it, through Hebrews. Something greater has come and it's Christ. He came as our perfect high priest. And notice again, he isn't kept back from a curtain. It's telling, isn't it, that at the moment of of giving his life as an atonement for sin, the curtain rent. It tore in two. The curtain was no longer a barrier. And oftentimes we say, well, it's no longer a barrier for us. But I'm not sure that's the picture. It wasn't us who entered the Holy of Holies. It was our high priest who entered the Holy of Holies. But now we have a high priest that is not constrained by time, neither in when he can enter the presence of our Heavenly Father, nor how long he can stay there. These are points that are going to be much exposited as we continue forward in Hebrews. Our high priest can enter and has entered and stays in the presence of our Heavenly Father. And he intercedes on our behalf constantly. It's not interrupted. It's not hindered. He didn't need to worry about atoning for his own sins before the sins of the people. There's going to be all these pictures coming up in Hebrews about why he's a greater high priest. But the importance is this. He doesn't pass through a curtain. He passed through the heavens. His appointed place wasn't behind some giant curtain, but his appointed place was at the right hand of the Father. The right hand of God the Father. That is his rightful place of intercession. Not in an earthly location, but at the very right hand of God. And so when we think about the high priest going to the seat of mercy, the mercy seat in the Old Testament, that is reworded slightly here, isn't it? We're to approach the throne of grace. Don't forget that the entire point there we talked about, uh, Christ, when He had by Himself purged our sins, took His rightful place at the right hand of the Father. Enthroned enthroned. This is not just a place of intercession. This is a place of ruling and reigning. He is our king priest. In fact, in chapter one, I think we had an entire sermon on that, didn't we? Our reigning uh, king priest. This is exactly what it's talking about. He has this throne which represents power. He is our intercessor. He is our high priest. All of these things are pictured in his appointment to the right hand of the Father, where he intercedes and rules and reigns and does all of his ministerial work on our behalf. As his people, Now those are glorious truths. He sits there interceding on our behalf. And that is confirmed in that language of a throne, a, a thronos, a seat of power and authority. That is where he has taken his place. And notice it's not just that it's a place, just like in the Old Testament, where we can receive mercy. Uh, or uh, Yeah, mercy, but we also receive grace there, he says. Right? We obtain mercy and find grace in our time of need. So all of this is shown to us, this place that He sits and rules and reigns. Now, if you think about that for a minute, that's a pretty stark difference, isn't it? A high priest separated 99.9% of the time from the presence of God by a curtain to our high priest who never leaves the presence of his Father. In fact, is always in the presence of God because he himself is God. And that's an important point for us to consider over and over again. And as we think about him as our priest, it becomes more important. If another high priest had entered any other time than the one appointed, he would have been struck down dead. But our holy, righteous, glorious, high king priest is there ruling and reigning and interceding. And what's more, we're to take from that an encouragement. Therefore, based on that, let us come to the throne of grace. Now think about that for a moment. When the high priest entered the Holy of Holies, we weren't allowed to go with him. If we had been an Israelite then, we could not have entered with him. But now we are told to come to our high priest. Think about this picture, this language, just for a second, because it is startling. If we had tried to go up with Moses onto Sinai, as we said earlier, we would have found that we would have been struck dead. We wouldn't have made it. If we had tried to enter along with the high priest into the presence of the Holy of Holies, into that room behind that curtain, we would have been struck dead. And perhaps he would have for taking us in. But that is not the case with our high priest now. He beckons us to draw near to him. And not while He's outside the Holy of Holies, but while He is in the heavenly picture of the Holy of Holies, in the very presence, if you will, of His Father. He is calling us, beckoning us, enter in, come to Me. Call upon Me. Draw near to this throne of grace in the very presence of His Father. Now, that is a startling picture. But it doesn't just tell us to enter in or to come. Look at what it says again. Therefore, come boldly. Come with confidence. Now, what does he mean by that? Come expecting that you will receive the help you need. You know, there's a difference, isn't there, between going to the presence of an earthly king, if you want to think about it for a moment, needing help. I don't know what help it might be that you'd need from an earthly king, but let's go back to the picture of these days. Maybe you can't afford the tribute you do or do to give to the king. And you come and ask for mercy. I I just don't have it right now, but I promise you, uh, as soon as I can raise it, I will bring it to you. And then you'll find out how kindly a king he is, right? Whether he says, no, it's due tomorrow or take your lands. Or whether he says, that's fine. That's what you can afford. Pay it now and, and pay the rest when you can. Those are things that would make you think, well, that's a very kindly king. He's understanding. He understands the difficulties we face and he's, he's merciful to us. I doubt you would find that very often in Earth, the King, when you go back and read. would have been the exception to the rule. Um, kings were known to enforce the rules very seriously uh, according to the law. And again, we have a king who uh, is merciful in this sense. We come to Him in our time of need. He is quick to offer us what we need, encouragement, help, grace, mercy. What is it we need? Confidence, steadiness, strength. He understands those things. He was walking in this world as we do now. We come to Him boldly expecting that if we truly need it, He's going to help His people. That's what it says. Now, it doesn't mean you can ask for whatever. The old song, Lord, won't you buy me a Mercedes Benz? I'm not sure that's on that list, right? But... Things that are prayed according to His will, He will answer. He will answer. Maybe not in the way we expect or would desire, but, but He is there working on our behalf, interceding on our behalf, sympathizing with us and giving us what we need in our time of need. We go to Him boldly, confidently. That's what we're told here. Draw near to Him. And it's not just an encouragement if you think about it. It's actually an instruction. It doesn't say please. It doesn't say if you want to or if you will. It says, do this. Let us come boldly. It's an instruction for the Christian life. We need to come boldly before the throne of grace because the truth is we're not going to make it any other way. We're going to have low points in our faith, low points in our, our walk. We're going to need help. We don't just need Christ's assistance in our justification. We need it in our sanctification. That's the reality. We're given the Holy Spirit who's at work on us, but we also need our intercessor at the right hand of God who through grace and mercy helps us out all the time. All the time. So we need to do this. We need to come and be bold, be confident, come before His throne because there we will find precious help. And that's really the second and quick point that we want to make here. There's a glorious truth here. God does not expect His people to be self-sufficient. He doesn't expect it. He doesn't expect somehow that we've come to a a point of realization that we cannot save ourselves, therefore we must be justified by faith. But then from that point on, it's all works of the law. Paul asks the question, who tripped you up in that way? Did you think that you'd begin with grace and end with simply the law? No, you are to be obedient. Let's make no mistake about it. But you need God's help in that as well. You need the work of the Holy Spirit in your heart. You need the intercession of Christ to be able to do this. It's necessary. He hasn't appointed that you're going to be able to meet every challenge outside of His strength and aid. That is why He is telling us, in our time of need, come boldly. Because we need to realize our need of Him. We need to realize it. And so in the Old Covenant we see this because God appointed priests to do what we could not do. And in the New Covenant, He is appointed a perfect high priest, offering help in our hour of need, who is able to give us what we need because He is right there at the throne of grace and beckons us to come. A king so kind, He calls all of His subjects, Come to me. Not only for that initial rest, but come to me for the help that you need in this walk. That is a kind king, one who offers mercy and grace in our time of need. You think about it that way, then you begin to understand these instructions that were given in the Scriptures. Be anxious for nothing, right? but by prayer and supplication with all thanksgiving, let your request be known to God. And this is a route to peace. Why? Because if we recognize that we serve and are subjects of the all-glorious king, And He has all power. What good does it do for me to fret and be anxious? I just need to go to Him. I need to come to the throne of grace and lift it up to Him. He knows what I do not know. He sees what I cannot see. I'm called to trust in Him and that isn't always easy. But it's what we're called and commanded to do. And we find it difficult. We come to the throne of grace and ask for strength and trust and steadiness. All those things, gifts of God. And so we have a a king who can help us in our hour of need. Now, again, if you lived in ancient days with kings, I guess there are still nations with kings today. They're not usually quite as they once were. Um, But if you did and you were a friend of the king or a friend of the prince that would get you a place in the court that you could come and advocate or, or ask the prince to advocate on your behalf, that was a powerful aid in your time of need. We have something better. We have our priest, our king, our glorious Christ, advocating on our behalf, offering strength, mercy, and aid as he knows best how to do. Now, why is this important to the recipients of Hebrews? Well, it's quite simple. They're in a time of need. Why are they looking to leave the church? Why are they slinking away, if you will? Why is this even a threat that they might do this? Why is the author of Hebrews saying, wait a minute, think about this for a moment? Because there's challenges. There's trials and difficulties. There is persecution. And there's a struggle to remain faithful in the face of it. For us to think that we might not struggle in the same circumstance is foolhardy. But what this author tells us is we don't turn away from Jesus in those moments, we turn to Jesus. We don't walk away from the throne of grace. We come to the throne of grace and we come boldly and we ask for what we need. We ask for help if we recognize, Lord, I don't know. I just feel too weak to stand in this day of challenge. Well, there's only one that can help you stand in that day of challenge. You go to Him. You lift it up to Him. And this author is reminding, think about for a moment what you're doing. You're turning away from the only one that can help you to turn back to what? To Aaron? To Aaron? What curtain can the new Aaron, whoever that would be, pass through? There isn't even a curtain any longer. There is no, in a real sense, place to turn back to. When this letter was written, it's likely the temple was still there and sacrifice is still ongoing. But he says, you know all this. You've been taught this. Heed the words you've been taught and consider them. You're turning back to a system that cannot avail you what you need. It'll give you a temporary place of safety. But what it would mean is that you're not a part of the people of God, and as that image was given to us in the last chapter and this chapter, you're going to die outside the promise. So here's what you need to do in your moment of need, in your moment of challenge, turn to Jesus. Turn to Him. If you are His, He will give you help in the hour of need. My friends, this is given to us. Why? Why did the Holy Spirit seem fit to give us this text? Because we have hours of need as well, don't we? If we're just honest about it. We have hours of need. Many of you have been through some valleys in your life, I'm sure. But maybe you've been there for someone else going through a valley. A valley where their faith seems weak or shaken. An hour of their life where they're not sure exactly how things are going to work out or if they can, in that moment, trust God. And the reminder that they're given here is, yes, you can. We have a faithful high priest. Turn to him. And by the way, our word of counseling and exhortation to one another. We're to exhort each other, aren't we? According to this very book, we are to exhort one another daily. How do we exhort one another? In those valleys. This very text. Don't turn away from our high priest. Turn to Him. In fact, don't just come to Him, but come to Him boldly, expecting that He can help you in your time of need. Expect that He can help you, because the truth is, He can. He is our perfect High Priest. As we move forward, as I said, this is all going to be set out for us. In fact, you can look at the very first line of the next chapter, For every high priest taken from among men is appointed for men in things pertaining to God. Now that harkens back to chapter 2, doesn't it? That we have a a faithful high priest who is appointed uh, for things pertaining to God. Again, it harkens back to that but reminds us of this, that we're going to be talking about the high priesthood of Christ. But this is not of secondary importance. Oftentimes we act as though the atonement of Christ is what really matters and that's all that matters. But what this author would remind us of, if Christ was not our high priest, even if it were, even if we were justified, we would never get through the valley of sanctification, we would never get to our glorification, if it wasn't for the keeping and working of God in our lives through the Holy Spirit but also through this ministry of Christ. It is necessary. Because the road is so difficult that my friends, we would not make it. I'll give you one more picture to think about on that from Pilgrim's Progress. Interpreter's house, the fireplace, Satan throwing water upon the fire. And you can see Christian almost could picture him wondering, how in the world does the fire continue to burn? How is it maintained? And he takes him to the other side of the wall where there's another fireplace on the opposite side and there is one pouring oil upon the fire. My friends, this is very much the work of Christ in our lives. And this is what this is referring to. So when we have need, don't turn away from him. Don't think he's, first of all, not able to help. He is. Don't think, second of all, he doesn't sympathize with you. He does. In fact, he does so much that he's called you to come to him. And to come to him in boldness. So my friends, that's what we need to do.